Victims have a right to be impatient. They have every right in the world to demand justice. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg and I'm here with my co-host Janet Anderson. And today's podcast is supported by justiceinfo.net. Now, there's a bit of background that we need to get through in order to introduce today's guest. He's been leading an investigative team and he has a mandate to examine a wide range of crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. He's got just one territory, Iraq, and a major non state armed actor known variously as Islamic State, ISIS, ISIL, Daesh. He has witnesses to, quote, executions, torture, amputations, ethno-sectarian attacks, rape and sexual slavery imposed on women and girls, end quote, according to the website. And uh, what makes his job also difficult is that thousands of children were actually victims, witnesses and forced perpetrators of some of the crimes that he's investigating. And there are more than 200 mass graves that have been found in the place where he's working. And in case you haven't guessed it yet, our uh, guest today is Kareem Khan, British barrister, Queen's Counsel, outgoing head of UNITAD, and that's the acronym for the United Nations Investigative Team to Promote Accountability for Crimes Committed by Daesh. And he's about to become the new prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. So welcome, Kareem. Well, thanks so much, uh, Janet and Stephanie, for the honour of inviting me to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I came despite the very inappropriate title for a man that is as bald as myself, but thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you both. Well, we just wanted to start off by getting the picture of you've been in this position. It's just about three years. Uh, You're the special advisor. You're the head of this team. Just take us back to the beginning. What were your priorities when you started? The priority really was to serve the mandate and discharge the responsibilities that had been set by the council. And it was to build a a team, unlike the Syria mechanism, the IIIM that had a commission of inquiry uh, that preceded it, or the Myanmar mechanism that had a fact-finding mission. We had nothing. Uh, We had a resolution. We had terms of reference. And uh, I walked into uh, an office uh, suite in New York, and I was told, build a team and deploy to Iraq. And that's what we did. So the expectations really at that point were in parallel. It's to build a team, to recruit people that are competent, that are energetic, that are dynamic, and that are committed to service. Uh, we are we're international public servants, lawyers, investigators, analysts, security staff, uh, administrative staff, HR, all of us in this joint endeavor. Um, so one is to move from a concept, from a piece of paper that was passed in the lofty chamber of the Security Council unanimously in September 2007 and to create a team, and then to create a team with a purpose. I think that was a key aspect, that it wasn't just to gather information to become a a repository where later on people do their PhD theses and it will gather dust or it can be part of a museum. The key expectation for survivors is that their rights to justice have indicated that people that have raped them or killed their loved ones or who've tortured them, that have thrown people of buildings because of their orientation, every kind of depravity, every type of crime that was characteristic of this most un-Islamic state, that those victims from across Iraq, all communities, all religions, all ethnic groups that were targeted by Daesh, they would see the law in action. 
they would see investigations that gave honor to the promise that every life matters, every human life has a value. And that meant inextricably speaking to the victim groups, building relationships with NGOs, and that's what we try to do. And how do you avoid over-promising and under-delivering to victims? Because that's obviously a huge risk. Uh, you come, uh, there's a lofty uh, decision on how to make this. You come in this this little room, now you meet victims, they want accountability, they want justice, they want a platform to tell their story. How do you manage expectations in a way? Uh, I think honesty is the key to that. Victims have a right to be impatient. They have every right in the world to demand justice. When I was appointed, the crimes started in 2014, 2015, 2016, 17. I was appointed in 2018. They have every right to be miffed, to say, well, what about this promise of the international community to protect lives? What about the promise of never again? It looked a travesty of justice, given their experiences. But at the same time, I had no problem to tell victims early on. I was, a number of victims said, please, you must call it genocide. They wanted action. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I understand what you're saying. But, you know, different governments, the European Union, uh, different NGOs, different states had made political determinations or an assessment based upon broad brushstrokes regarding the legal characterization. But I said, look, for us to really serve our mandate, we are different. We're criminal investigators. We are lawyers. We have a burden of proof that we have to ensure is met. And I'm not able to do it now, but we will do it as soon as we can, once we've built a team and we've done the you know necessary due diligence. And the other aspect which I think is really important is telling them from the outset there's no hierarchy of victim. That when you are building a, a team and there's so much diversity, Kurd and Arab, Kakai, Shabak, Christian, Yazidi, Shia, Sunni, Turkmen, you can't possibly do all of that. So I made a determination early on that I would focus in year one on crimes against the Yazidi, crimes in Mosul, and the massacre of mostly Shia uh, air cadets and other personnel in, in Spica. But I told the other communities, I said, please bear with me. I can't start doing active investigations, but we'll do our utmost to get resources to do that. And I think they appreciated the honesty. And in the end, we managed to do that. Now we have uh, every community have crimes against them being properly investigated. So it's honesty, uh, Steph. You've mentioned um, that the mandate was given to you by the council, and you've mentioned also other states and, uh, you know, their sort of descriptions or designations or, or decisions about what these crimes are. How has it been to try to manage with, you know, really powerful states actually, you know, looking over your shoulder and maybe putting pressure on you? Well, I, I, it depends. I mean, NGOs can also put pressure on you. States have their jobs. NGOs have their jobs. Civil society have their job. The role of professionals is to have thick enough skin and good enough judgment to understand the difference between pressure and legitimate communication. And I think when it comes to states, the reality of international law, states are the foundation. And whether they're looking over your shoulder or have you have your back is a matter of perspective, but it's also a matter of engagement to make sure that the communication is good and that we build this common ground. End of the day, which state, which NGO, which victim, which survivor, which human being would be in favor of the ideology, the crimes of Daesh, which debased the human spirit against man, woman and child? 
and it's about building that consensus and showing that it's in the interest of everybody to support international justice and the rule of law. And I think that requires communication, it requires explanation, it also requires, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It requires states to see that this is not a, you know, um, a vanity project, that it, it is geared to effective fulfillment of the mandate so that it adds value to the quest that different states have to accountability. Just to understand that kind of symbiosis with states, I mean, you're you're in a really difficult security environment. A lot of your security is provided by the United Nations, but maybe also from other states as well. They, you know, how does that work when when you're working with states that they're giving you something, but you're also asking for something from them and trying to be independent? How do you manage that that balance? I mean, everywhere where the United Nations works. Absent a Chapter Seven resolution, particular circumstances like like Kosovo, um, but but even then, you have a United Nations a mandate. There's a host country. There's a host country agreement, and uh, whether it's you know humanitarian assistance, uh, political uh, missions like UNAMI or an accountability mechanism, we have an underoperable obligation to be independent and impartial. You take the assistance. For example, yes, we have our a third of our staff is security because we're in a very high risk area. Uh, in Baghdad, in Mosul, in uh, in um, the KRG, Duhuk area, when we go to Sinjar, it's close to the Syria uh, border and there's still active hostilities there and IEDs. But in addition, we do have the envelope of security that the state, the host state also provides. And it, it's a partnership and you do that in a way that it doesn't encroach upon the protection of witnesses or the ability for witnesses to engage with us confidentially. Uh, you make sure that every mission is properly planned, witness protection is put in uh, and have a voice, and you make sure that those essential ingredients of an independent investigation are properly fulfilled. And it requires sometimes a banging of heads, sometimes it requires communication, but very often, at the end of the day, we're in somebody else's country, and I think we're there not coercively, we're there at the invitation of Iraq, with a unanimous Security Council uh, resolution. And I think, you know, that sometimes slow and steady wins the race, constant communication, explanation, and to show there's mutual advantages, notwithstanding that there may be difficulties or little bumps along the way, is the only way to build that consensus for international justice, which anyway is done in partnership with states. It can't be done otherwise. Apart from the from the successes that you had in in the sense of establishing all those investigations and the things that are, that are coming out in your reports, at your last appearance at the UN, you presented also two new guides for investigators, and, and we'll take each of those in turn, and also maybe ask a bit about how you will take those guides and what you've learned into your new job. But first, you put out a trauma-informed field guide, making sure that your teams understand how to deal with witnesses who experienced grave trauma. Can you outline kind of what the most important thing is that is needed that you've learned? Yeah, I think this was an early initiative uh, when I joined UNITAD. Very often we have uh, different witness protection, but I think it's viewed very often as an issue of only physical security or for even sometimes psychological support in terms of gender crimes. But the reality, every witness that you, uh, or almost every witness one encounters from theatres where there's been such mass atrocities, are suffering trauma in one form or the other. Either they're directly witnessed it, they've lived through it, they've lost loved ones, uh, or they've been targeted by it. 
And uh, really, it was a realization that psychosocial support, this multidisciplinary partnership between lawyers, investigators, psychosocial, and the whole team, is essential if we're to do more than pay lip service, to do no harm as a principle. And it can't be an afterthought. It can't be done only at the stage when witnesses are identified. It must be done early on when you're actually engaging with witnesses for at least two reasons. Firstly, it helps ensure a trauma-informed approach. It helps advise the investigators how they should approach and tailor the questioning, the modalities of interviewing, uh, the, you know, the, the mode and manner of questioning, uh, depending if it's a, a child you know, or a, different, uh, a witness with different characteristics or traits or, or trauma, but also a realization that it's not only a function of do no harm, but common sense that a witness that feels in a safer space, that feels more comfortable, that feels less anxious, is going to, all things being equal, give a more complete, a more coherent, uh, and a more cogent narrative that will be a more accurate reflection of what the witness has seen or heard. And I think that also is a right of the witness, because if the witness does come to court, they're going to be cross-examined on that statement. And I think it's a, an obligation of us that have the honor of engaging with those witnesses to make sure we don't give easy hits to the defense because of imprecise or less than thoughtful, well-planned interviews. And really, that was the obligation uh, that inspired the, the trauma-informed approach field guide. I thought it was really interesting as a journalist also to read through it. And I, apart from reading also other things on how to deal with journalists with traumatized uh, people that you might interview, I, I, I think you really should, anybody who's doing this in this field should really read that guide. And I thought there were really very small, but very practical things that you also put in that list where always have an outside space where you interview them, maybe a different town, but also always have enough tea and water and snacks available so that people don't have to go out to get other things. And I felt that's such an easy way to put people at ease. And I wonder how many UN investigators think of that as a general rule. And I thought it was really lovely to see that kind of care put in the guide. But I'm wondering what the challenges are of implementing that in reality, um, because of when you are on scenes, there's a lot going on. I'm thinking of my job as a journalist, sometimes there's a lot going on, maybe this is better planned. But there's always things that happen unexpectedly and people that turn up that could be witnesses that you can interview then and there and you don't know when again. So how does it work in practice? Yeah, it's a great question. Can I, first, I must pay credit to the, the team because this guide, it was a, a partnership, our our clinical psychologists, our investigators and lawyers, but wonderful partnership with Stanford University Human Rights in Trauma Clinic led by Dr. Darren uh, Rakata, who's appeared as an expert witness at the ICC uh, in many occasions, and Beth Van Schack and uh, the team over at Stanford. So it really was a joint initiative. And really, it was it was using the authority that was given in the in the resolution to enter into agreement with states, organizations, or corporations, because you also see reference to the Sesame Street videos that we have for psychological trauma, which I'm particularly you know, excited about. I think it's quite a, a wonderful initiative. In terms of the thrust of your question, I think investigators need to have a blueprint to turn their mind to various issues, to have a basic SOPs, and you'll see that I took the decision to annex even SOPs. Uh, to the trauma-informed uh, guide, not because they're perfect, but I took the view is, you know, we want to have the best 
practices so that the evidence we collect has the greatest chance of being admitted before courts. And if people, if your readers see it and there are things that are not perfect, that can be improved, and of course there will be, give, provided an email address, please let us do the, you know, uh, inform us about it, the living documents, and we'll improve it. But every system, every witness is unique. And I'm a firm believer you can't take a, a template and shove it down the throat of a witness and force the witness to comply with stereotypes. Uh, we should adapt our process to the witness, not the witness adapt to us. And this is why what the trauma-informed approach looks at is look at the individual. Don't come with your own baggage, your expectations. Children are you know, incompetent and not capable uh, of giving their accounts. They're much more resilient, far better witnesses uh, than very often uh, are, they're given credit for. They have a right to give their stories. The same in terms of issues of uh, gender-based violence against men or women or, 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 or children for that matter. Leave our own assumptions at the door, listen to the witness, be informed by certain traits. But at the end, we should, you know, the witness we physically see should actually be seen, not just be viewed as a component in an investigative plan. And I think really that's the underpinning of the trauma-informed approach. Adaptation is fine as long as it's done by way of expertise and proper understanding of what our role is in the process and the key role of the victim or the witness. In the guide for trauma-informed investigating, there's also a whole chapter on self-care for your own team. Can you explain maybe what has changed for you over the years and the need to have this self-care? Because you also, in your different guises as a prosecutor, as an investigator, also as a defense lawyer, have heard lots of testimonies about uh, atrocities that happened. What's the thing that you would pull out as the most important advice? I think the most important advice is in the same way that every witness is different, every professional, every human being, we're all different. This is the beauty of humanity. So people react differently to different stimuli, to different emotions, to different experiences. I think in terms of the management, we have a duty of care to our staff. And that embraces not only their physical security, it also embraces their psychological well-being. Now, this is heavy work. It is difficult work. The emotion of hearing testimonies from survivors is immense. In fact, sometimes much more for the interpreters than for the lawyers who interpret in the first person. It becomes, even as evidence of that, it's a very traditional process. So the first thing is to realize there's no gold medal for conducting an interview if you don't feel able to do so. You should be able to say, I'm not ready for this. I can't do it with this. Particularly where we have Iraqi members of the team, but also others. Different crimes may resonate because of people's history in different ways and also different times in their life. And so people should feel absolutely fine to say, look, I can't do this at the moment. If you're a, a, a Yazidi member of the team or a Kakai member of the team or even an international member of the team with, and you feel it's too tough, don't go through it because it's not fair to the witness. The other aspect is, of course, we have UN uh, counselors. We have our own clinical psychologists whose really function is to help us do better for the witness rather than the self-care to the staff because counseling is for that and they've got to keep their own professionalism because they're colleagues, they're not, they're not only counselors. But we have training and we make it uh, you know, an open discussion. We also have entered partnerships, for example, with, with uh, Microsoft humanitarian and uh, using modern technology as a way. So, for example, with the awful videos you have of Daesh throwing people off buildings or executing 
people in lines or burning people alive or children with guns and it's as horrific as you could imagine drowning people putting them in water breathing and the bodies come up and they're they're lifeless corpses um this technology will also allow face you know the the faces to be pixelated the the evidence even and you can almost screen it so that of course you have to handle that evidence to understand it but it can alleviate needless visual watching of these videos that can keep causing secondary trauma and uh, i think that's also an important way to limit the potential of secondary trauma on staff members so it's a combination training processes but also using technology and realizing the best ways your colleagues as well make it uh, there shouldn't be stigma in relation to some evidence being difficult to absorb and deal with Thanks for making the segue into the technology side of things, because you've also put out this use of technology guide a little bit uh, shorter than the other one. There isn't a huge amount of detail in there, but for me, it feels really exciting that this is the, the future for international criminal justice investigations. Can you maybe give us an example? I mean, you've given one already of pixelating faces of of. of you know, is there a particular visualization that you are particularly proud of that you can tell us about that you said, yeah, this is this is how we should be doing it in the future, how we should be using technology? Yes, I think technology can't replace the the human aspect, but it's an important resource to facilitate and accelerate the work that we have to do. I mean, the larger the data sets with Daesh, you know, you can imagine uh, how many social media posts, how many publications, how many videos were broadcast by ISIL over, you know, between 2014 and 17, even today, but particularly in that period. And, you know, if you look at it, even in terms of the videos we had some while back, if you watched it continuously for 24 hours a day, it's more than a year and a bit of, of video. And it's much more now than it was when I had that statistic. So, you know, using technology is important. But for me, what's more important than technology is using it in an integrated way. It's not about, you know, the bells and whistles, just to say, well, this is a shiny, exciting piece of tech, and that's an exciting piece of tech. It's having a joined-up approach to technology, so it's integrated in what we're trying to do, which is to pierce the veil of criminal responsibility, to build cases against those ISIL members that committed these violations of international humanitarian law as effectively as possible. And I think it can't be taken in isolation. I mean, we have software, for example, that does facial recognition. We have technology to improve the sound and audio qualities. We have, uh, with situ, you know, the 3D, uh, you can see it on our website, the 3D of the school. All of these are important in the end to help both preserve evidence, to understand the evidence, and to identify perpetrators, and particularly in with mechanisms like UNITAD, where we are an investigative team on the lookout for a court. We don't know where that court is. We don't know is it civil law or common law. We don't know, you know, we hope a law will be passed soon, at least in the KRG. So, and we know even in Iraq, judges may not always, it's not a static security situation. It's quite dynamic. It's fluctuating. So even within Iraq, certain site visits may be not without peril. And definitely European courts and elsewhere find it difficult to come. So it's a way of also taking the crime scene to the court when courts can't visit the crime scene. So these are a range of uses of technology, which I think are essential now 
in any effective investigation that's been conducted. We need to be in the 21st century. I think we'll definitely uh, use that phrase, uh, an investigative team in, in search of a court. It's, it's, uh, you, know, you really get that sense of what it is that, that you're doing. Well, we do know that there's been some kind of a mechanism or a court of some kind established in Iraq, I believe. There are new laws that we've covered previously on the podcast to do with reparations for victims. So how is your evidence already being used and um, how do you expect it to be used? I mean, you've already said you don't know. But why don't you give us a sketch of what what do you want to see happen? Well, I'll say what we've done so far. We've provided assistance. We've had requests from 13 states uh, in the world in relation to uh, ISIL crimes. We've fed testimonial evidence into courts in Europe. We've uh, other courts. We've uh, facilitated appeal work, facilitated investigation stage uh, interviews. With Iraq, we've shared evidence in relation to financial investigations because Financial investigations regarding ISIL crimes don't carry the death penalty. The bill regarding the domestication of international crimes in Iraq, a bill has been presented to the government in Baghdad, but it's not moved forward in the way that we hoped. But uh, just before my Security Council report, the Prime Minister of the KRG, and we've been working with them as well as the Baghdad authorities, they are committed now to a law that we believe if all the amendments uh, that we've suggested are incorporated, which I've been told they will, that will meet international standards and it will allow fair trials in the Kurdish regional government of Iraq and would allow the possibility to prosecute ISIL for members for genocide crimes against humanity war crimes. So that's the you know the, le- the legal part that uh, is, is, uh, is underway. And your UNITAD is one of the new generations of mechanisms like the IIIM in Syria and the IIIM in Myanmar because the Security Council won't or doesn't agree to send these cases to more established courts. Is this the way forward or wouldn't an established court or tribunal be better? And is that also maybe why you're moving on to an established court or tribunal? Well, um, I mean, the ICC has an important part to play. And, you know, having an ability to investigate and then to test the professionalism, the dedication, the sufficiency of evidence by independent judges is the final stage of a process. Otherwise, you know, that's when it's really tested. But I think the quest for accountability, we shouldn't be parochial about it. I don't think it matters too much for most victims where justice takes place as long as it takes place. So the edifice of complementarity that underpins the Rome Statute is what we're trying to do in Iraq. It's the primary responsibility of the state that where the crimes have been committed. So I think what's really important is collectively as a civilization, country states take the responsibility seriously, that uh, and increasingly seriously, that when there are crimes of this magnitude, there's no option. It requires it as a matter of international law, as a matter of economic interest, as a matter of stability and security, as a matter of moral right as well as legal responsibility, that they need to be investigated and they need to be prosecuted. And the choice is, you know, the forum becomes secondary as long as there are independent investigations and there are independent professional judges. And I think that is the real thing that victims want. When these crimes take place in the first instance, It is a result of people being marginalized in most cases. It's uh, a space has opened up in which people have been vilified because of their 
gender, their color, their creed, their religion, their orientation, they have not felt fully enfranchised in the fabric of society. And what we have to do at the very least is that when those hemorrhages take place, we must vindicate the right that every human life matters and that every life that is taken in within the jurisdiction that we are dealing with is properly investigated and those culprits are held accountable and then the evidence can be determined, the sufficiency of evidence can be determined by judges and it can be tested and that's only right and appropriate. You're handing the reins over now of UNITAD, so this isn't really your responsibility, but I wanted to understand from your perspective, when does UNITAD's work finish? I mean, how do you know when you're finished in this kind of a situation? Well, I I stated it in my last report to the Security Council. It's for Iraq to decide when it's finished. We see in, in in the Nazi Holocaust crimes, even more recently, people come out of the woodwork, they're identified. There's no statute of limitation for these barbarous acts, and there's a responsibility to make sure that they are properly investigated. What I've stated in the last report is that I think also there's not an appetite to have mechanisms for 25 years. The the council states also need to put those resources in other parts of the world where, unfortunately, similar things are happening. So what I've proposed in in the last report is that within three years of the laws being passed, I would hope at least we can do specimen cases against the main communities. So the Christian, the Yazidi, the Shia, the Sunni, the Kakai, the Shabak, you know, gender crimes, the, the Turkmen. And so that all those communities would have so-called evidence-based investigations and then judicial determinations in relation to the crimes committed against them. Then it's for Iraq to decide when is enough enough. And it may, may be because we have Iraqis working on an equal footing within UNITAD, because Iraq is the primary intended recipient, because it is a partnership, if they see the value of the law in operation, not as preaching, not as some kind of uh, import from abroad, but something that is being built within the structures of Iraq, they may say, well, this is a jolly good thing. It, it honors the survivors. It counters the violent extremism that plagues humanity. And maybe they will want to do more of it themselves and that's a matter for them but in terms of UNITAD's mission I think within three years we can then start moving of the law being passed we're ready to go to feed into that with with agreements regarding the death penalty and other things and then we can look at move into a residual mechanism in which the evidence then can still be preserved that we've gathered to feed into other states that are identifying members of Daesh that have come back uh, into third countries or those that are found in Iraq or in the region. And you are about to take over the helm as the new uh, International Criminal Court prosecutor. Are you chomping at the bit, ready to go? Or will you think you'll need a couple of, um, some time to get into stride? How should we judge your first hundred days? Do you kindly. Think? <laughs> Generously. Are there some things that you take from this UNITAD experience uh, that you are definitely want to bring to the ICC, for example, the very vast uh, trauma-informed approach to victims? I think there's always lessons in life that you've learned from mistakes, from successes, and all of those will inform my approach, hopefully, when I commence my term as a prosecutor of the ICC. And also, no doubt, I will learn from colleagues that are in the ICC 
um, so that hopefully that the decisions I make in terms of the strategic decisions, the investigative decisions, the legal decisions are as solid as I can make them. And uh, of course, none of us are perfect. There will be mistakes that are made. Uh, I will make mistakes, but um, I will always be uh, endeavoured to do what I've done in my life, try to be sincere, try to be straightforward, to listen, but also don't shirk uh, decisions, uh, realising that we have a tremendous privilege, all of us that are involved in this area, lawyer, non-lawyer alike, there's no hierarchy even there. We, we all need each other as a component because we are, you know, we're going to be forgotten in a blink of an eye. And we are doing something that resonates beyond time. It goes back to the Holocaust and the gas chambers, uh, the killing fields of Cambodia, the Balkans, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, and of course, Iraq, Syria, and uh, Myanmar, and this goes on and on and on. And I think that sense of responsibility, that sense of service is really essential for us to discharge the responsibility so that when we breathe our last, we feel that we did our best, notwithstanding mistakes. And then for those mistakes, we ask for forgiveness and mercy. Well, as journalists, we uh, certainly will not be able to promise to be constantly generous. We will always be critical, always sniping from the sidelines with our quick news takes and sometimes our deeper analyses. But thank you very much for making the time to chat to us now. We always have a few extra questions that we ask our guests. So let me just start with the first one, which is there anything that we should have asked you that we haven't asked you yet that you wish that you'd had a chance to talk about? No, you you kindly didn't ask me about my barber on asymmetrical haircuts. So apart from that, uh, you gave me a There's nothing additional that you left out. So thank you. Uh, Another question we ask, which is a bit of an American job interview question in the interest of embracing uh, your failures. Is there anything that you've had to really change your views on over the course of your career that you in the beginning thought it's this way and then kind of found out that maybe not? There's probably so many to mention that one can't even think of them. I mean, life is a journey of We're trying to keep our eyes open and our ears open and be aware of our human fallibilities. And it's the quest to wisdom and knowledge and learning. And I think along the way, of course, on so many issues, you learn by way of experience and you learn from others and you learn particularly in this area, not just from the big states that uh, Janet spoke about, either over your shoulder or at your back, as the case may be, but from the most greatest heroes whose story we help tell which are the victims and the survivors who endure more, who have endured much more than any living soul should ever have to be endured. And I think that's a constant lesson and a constant education that they provide. And I think we are really, we should be humbled and really privileged to listen to those stories and to try to play a small part in their right. And in fact, to discharge our responsibility to ensure justice for what they've endured. And our final, final question is, What are you reading at the moment or listening to if you happen to be a podcast person or what are you binging on Netflix? You know, what's on your nightstand or in your queue? You mean podcasts beside asymmetrical oh, haircuts? Absolutely, of course That's you listen mean. to us. No. But yes. Uh, yes, I mean, I won't boy. I mean, I've just finished reading an interesting book by, I think his name is uh, Ravi Samaya. Uh, it's called The Golden Thread. It's a book regarding the investigation. Uh, into the crash or stroke killing, um, as the case may be, of the great Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. Um, so that's worth a read. And of course, Mohammed Chand Othman, who was on the IER 
was the chair of the, he was the eminent person, and before that he was the chair of the eminent persons uh, for the United Nations for the recent report that was completed. Great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for, for sharing your time with us. We really appreciated it. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. And I see that you haven't moved to The Hague yet, judging from your background, unless you have a very clever digital background. But I don't see leafy sun, which I'm seeing outside my window in the nearby The Hague. No, I'll be coming to The Hague in a few days. Uh, in a few days. Hopefully my travel is arranged. And hopefully the diesel uh, I'm sure. I'm up. sure it has been. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. I will see you in The Hague. Thank you. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word.